If you would take a copy of the Bible, whether the Blue Pew Bible's in front of you or sitting in the seats around you or maybe on another row, in case your row doesn't have one, and turn to page 918, Acts chapter 9, or in the Bibles you brought, of course. Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be starting in verse 32 of that chapter as we continue our series going through the book of Acts. This summer, uh, I hope to get somewhere to the midpoint, and then we'll take a break, and then, Lord willing, return to the rest of the book later this year. Acts chapter 9. Differences easily divide. We do not need to look far to prove that statement. Just think about your last argument with somebody else and what happened after that, for example. Or think about how social media and politics and polarizing figures cause massive rifts in our cultural landscape. It seems we are getting more and more unable to enjoy being the same when increasingly we are frustrated with each other over what makes us different. And if you were to map our trajectory as a culture, you might have good reason to think that it only gets more divided from here and be pessimistic about the possibility to unite. In our broader world, this may be a warranted concern. But what about inside the church? Should we? Can we expect that there would be an opposite trajectory for us? Where differences become an occasion for appreciating those differences, but also arriving at a place where we enjoy what makes us the same. If that's something you want, if that's something you wish for, Our passage this morning, Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 11, verse 18, gives us hope. Here we encounter two very different people with very different lives who God brings into the same life together. This passage encourages us to welcome the work of God that brings us into the same kingdom through the same gospel and spirit. But it also alerts us to some of the barriers we might erect that would prevent God's work in this way. So we are going to trace the way God works to bring different things, different people to the same place. And along the way, I'm going to highlight these potential barriers so that we can invite God's way instead of standing in his way. So my outline from this passage will be three things, three ways we notice God works. First, different instructions, same direction. Different instructions, same direction. Secondly, different nations, same God and gospel. Different nations, same God and gospel. And thirdly, different backgrounds, same life in the spirit. 
different backgrounds, same life in the spirit. So just to catch us up to speed in case you haven't been able to be with us for this study in Acts. What's just recently happened is we've heard about one, one man named Philip who goes out as a, as a minister, a messenger of Jesus. And through him proclaiming the gospel, a man from Ethiopia, Ethiopian eunuch, becomes a Christian in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, we hear about a man named Saul who is actually opposed to God and opposed to Christianity, who also becomes a Christian. And the focus then, at the end of chapter 9, where we pick up, shifts back to another man, Peter, an apostle, one sent out from Jesus to proclaim about Jesus' death and resurrection. We're shifting back to Peter. And here we will hear a third account of a person who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, a man named Cornelius. I told some of you that this name has been very tricky for me this week. So if I stumble over that name, you just know that it's just part of my weakness. So we're going to spend our time this morning with Peter and this guy whose name starts with a C. But notice how that story gets set up in verse 32 of chapter 9 to verse 43. Set up with two miracles that Peter performs. I'm not going to read these. Let me summarize what happens here. Peter goes and heals a paralyzed man in the name of Jesus. And then even more remarkably, raises a dead girl to life. Now, since the beginning of Acts, these miracles started being performed in what might seem like a predictable place. In the same place where Jesus ministered in Jerusalem. But as Acts has progressed, so has the geographical location where these miracles are happening to the point Where we're in Joppa in verse 36, on the very westernmost border of Jewish country, a city which is largely inhabited by non-Jews, Greeks. This is a faint signal that the kingdom of Jesus is about to break out and extend even beyond the national boundary of Israel. But the even brighter signal... That that's going on is the miracle that Peter performs in Acts, 10, Acts 9, 36 to 42. A girl dies. Peter is called. He prays and tells her to rise. And she does. So in this pseudo-Jewish and Greek place, the spirit of God is still bringing resurrection power so that the dead might live. Perhaps the gospel's effects would stretch Beyond one nation's borders. And as we move into chapters 10 and 11. God's work to save others. Is clearly confirmed. In the conversion of Cornelius. That's where we pick up. As we consider God's work. In our first point this morning. Different instructions. Same direction. I'm going to read chapter 10. Verse 1 through 23. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice again came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. So both Cornelius and Peter received divine communication. An angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter. Then God tells Peter to not call unclean what God made clean. And at first glance, these two communications don't seem that related. Cornelius must need to hear something from Peter. But what is Peter's vision of all these animals in a sheet, kind of extended out like a hammock? What does that have to do with anything beyond what Peter's diet can now be? God is directing this. And he is directing both these men toward the same thing, even though their instructions may seem so different. Two important things you need to know that are operating in the cultural background of this story. First, Cornelius is a Roman citizen and he is not a Jew. Therefore, he is known as a Gentile by the Jews. The Jews were directed in the Old Testament to keep clear and public the distinction between themselves as the covenant people of God and all those outside. So purity laws were one of the ways that God gave for this purpose of marking the divide. These laws, when followed, publicly marked off Israel from the ways and customs of surrounding nations. And the most notable was circumcision. But then there were laws about what you would do if you came in contact with a dead person or diseases, even the kinds of food you ate. Which leads to the second thing to explain about what's going on, Peter's vision of the animals. 
all the animals he sees are prohibited under Jewish purity laws in Leviticus. We know this not only because of the list in verse 12, but also because of Peter's reaction in verse 14. Peter instinctively rejects God's command to kill and eat these kinds of animals because he knows that to do it would be to disobey the law as he knows it and lead to his own defiling. Notice what I think is fascinating then is that God is telling Peter that it's okay to now do what the Old Testament law prohibited. What are we to make of this? Is this justification for throwing away all of the Old Testament with its laws? Is God contradicting himself and legitimately opening the way for people to throw him off as an inconsistent God who changes? No, this is the same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. And scripture in all its parts affirms him to be true and eternal. Notice as we look more closely that God doesn't say, the animals I used to say are unclean, I've now decided are clean. Arbitrarily. Nor does he contradict Peter on the basis of Peter's understanding of the purity laws. As if Peter said, these things aren't clean. And God says, you misunderstood the law. They really are clean. No, God says he made the unclean clean. And that's why Peter can eat it and still be consistently obedient to God's word. On the basis of what God has done. So, if you're curious, just as a brief note, religious food laws are not now part of the new covenant life of the Christian with with the Lord. It might not be healthy for you to eat bacon all the time. But God says, from an obedience to his word standpoint, you are more than welcome. So, now having clarified the Jew-Gentile distinction and what's going on in the background here and what Peter would have thought about all of this, along with the food laws... We need to zoom out about into what's happening in these visions. The angel tells Cornelius, a Gentile, to come into Peter, a Jew's, house. Another no-no for a Jew. To bring a Gentile around his table in hospitality. Meanwhile, God tells Peter that he makes unclean things clean. And so Peter can consume these clean foods. God is setting both these men on a destination from different starting points, but when followed will, as we'll see, lead to a same conclusion. At this point in the story, the conclusion isn't clear. But it is clear that it's God directing the angel visitor and the vision which is reiterated to Peter three times in verse 16. What barrier would have prevented these men from following God's directions, even though they didn't have a clear conclusion. Disobedience. Not going. Deciding that despite the abundant clarity provided by the word of the Lord, they were going to rationalize not following the instructions given to them by God because of their cultural Backgrounds. 
If we want to make it to where God is leading us, we must be willing to listen to his word and obey. When he received the vision and then the summons from Cornelius, I don't think Peter had it all worked out yet. But he went. God's word is always, no matter what standpoint we're starting from, it's always going to lead in the same direction where we can know God and love him. Know him more and love him more. So friend, if you know nothing about God, be encouraged that ignorance is not a barrier for making progress. Look at Cornelius. If we don't know his word, then his spirit will teach us and give us gradual, progressive understanding to lead us to where he would have us go. But unwillingness to obey his word? Well, that can jeopardize our life with God even before it starts. Right now, our church is 137 members. 137 different people. And a potential for many different opinions about what's most important. We may all be at different places in our walk with the Lord right now. And that is great. We may all be in similar or different seasons. And that's to be expected. We may regularly be sensitive in our own lives to different emphases that God is drawing our attention to in his word. Praise God for his leading. The spirit of God through the word of God will direct you as an individual Christian in ways that are specific to you. That's part of what it means that you are God's child and he is your father. And as he does, you can know that he's going to draw you to the fellowship of other gospel people. The different instructions we may receive through different parts of God's word are all meant to point to a common purpose. Our lives live together in the gospel for Jesus' namesake. God is directing Cornelius and Peter toward greater gospel clarity and unity around that gospel, which we're about to see. So we can always expect that that's going to be the way that he leads us. No matter where we differ, even if we grew up in a different country from another person. If we know Christ, God can unite us around him to himself. Which leads us to the second way we see God working in this passage. Different nations, same God and gospel. Look at verse 24 of chapter 10. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, 
Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Man, that never gets old. As soon as Peter sets foot in Cornelius' home, he addresses the elephant in the room. He, as a Jew, is not supposed to be fraternizing with the Gentiles. Certainly not accepting their hospitality to the point that he would share a meal with them. And Peter's concern helps us appreciate the scandal of Jesus' ministry to come and eat with tax collectors and sinners. It also helps us appreciate what Jesus came to do. As we heard John Massey read from Ephesians 2 earlier, Jesus came on a barrier-removing, wall-breaking, hostility-ending mission. Peter, apparently on his journey, has been thinking about what that vision meant. And by the time he gets to Cornelius, he understands that God making unclean food clean was the setup for seeing that through the gospel, God makes unclean people clean. Clean in a spiritual sense. Clean from what stains all of us. Clean from what separates us that a holy God cannot tolerate in his presence. Our sin. The sin we're born with and the sin we commit in our lives. The Holy Spirit isn't just showing Peter that now, are, now there are more items on the buffet to choose from when he goes out to eat. 
More than that, through Jesus, God the Father is putting a few more leaves in the table in order to invite so many more to come and sit down and eat as God's redeemed family. So by the time he arrives, Peter has gotten the main point of the vision. God is impartial, so the gospel message is for everyone. It was for the Jewish disciples of Jesus at Pentecost, but it was also for the Gentiles who never knew Jesus personally, nor had ever until this point heard of his death and resurrection for for sinners. God's impartiality, who he is, that is his character, is demonstrated through the gospel, the message that Peter delivers to Cornelius and his household in verse 32 to 43. The message is clearly for Cornelius, even though he's not a Jew. The message is for him to hear and believe and receive, just like Peter. In the Old Covenant, God worked exclusively through one nation, Israel, and welcomed others to come in and be part of his people in Israel. But that, that whole situation was a shadow That takes its full and true form in this new covenant through Jesus. When God works exclusively through Christ. And welcomes all nations into his kingdom. We look at each other. We look at other human beings. And we see differences, don't we? But God looks at all humanity. And he sees a major similarity. We are all sinners who have turned away from him. The rebellious ones and the religious ones alike. And to all sinners, regardless of language, skin color, custom, or grade or depth of sin, God issues an open invitation. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're needy or not, whether you're European or Asian, African or Hispanic, Jesus came and died and is now alive. And by believing in him, you can be forgiven. This is the direction that God leads to all of us, no matter where we're from, to find forgiveness full and free in Jesus's name. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. We all need the same crucified and risen Jesus. Praise God that he is both impartial and generous. With Cornelius, God opens the floodgates of salvation wide. Anybody who will hear and turn can come. Did you know that most of us in this room do not trace our heritage back to Jewish people, but to Gentile people? God saving Cornelius was the first hint that God would also choose to save you. If you're here and you know that you need to give your life to the Lord, you're you're almost just sort of teetering on the precipice of following Jesus like Cornelius was, but not quite there yet. If you haven't yet sought him for forgiveness and wanted and pled with him to take your life and use it, please see that nothing needs to prevent you from coming. Christ came to break down the barrier between you and God. 
The thing that would hold you back, your sins, your failings, your weaknesses, your inadequacies. Jesus knows all these things. He knew them when he came to die and take away your sin. He knows them now as he lives by his spirit in power through his people to give us power and strength where we know we don't have any. He'll offer you that as well. Jesus is the way to peace with God. So believe on him today and live. Because of an impartial God who sent his son for the forgiveness of our sins, the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. Any can come. There's no restriction. But only through Jesus. This new transnationalism of the gospel that is breaking wide open in this passage should inform our view and stance toward other countries. As Americans, ethnocentrism, nationalism, even forms of patriotism could lead us to a posture of thinking of our country or our state or our neighborhood or our street as better And people in other places is less deserving of the grace of God. If the angels in heaven rejoice when every lost sheep is found. Shouldn't we be more joyful since we know what it means to be a sinner condemned to die and set free by the blood of Christ? Shouldn't we have greater joy in that ourselves because we were the sheep that was found? Church, may it never be true that we are a people who struggle to be happy. That someone came to know Jesus because of prejudices we hold against them. God's direction for us, his people, is to lead us like Peter. And to lead us to meet people who are different from us but need the same gospel that we need. And this will mean that he will either send us or use us to send others across cultures, across cities, across nations to bring the gospel of Jesus to them. God's divine guidance is always directing his people toward gospel proclamation and gospel belief where it is not. And it's a it's a wonderful thing to tell you the opportunities for this work are not scarce. There are many places and many people even within a five-mile radius of where we sit, for whom we can go and tell about Jesus. One of the ways we can do this is association with other churches. Churches like Christ Community Church on the street that we pray for this morning that are seeking to be in the places we are to tell the same Jesus. We can partner with churches for the sake of the gospel going out. I was recently with pastors from other churches that we've associated with thinking about how our church can partner with their churches for missions and evangelism. Be encouraged. Through gospel partnerships that we have, like those, we are right now getting to be part of seeing the gospel translated to other languages, and missionaries being sent to unreached places, and churches planted in places where there aren't any, and many other things happening that we pray God will use to lead people to being saved. We get to have a part in that. Also notice there in verse 44 to 48, when the Holy Spirit falls, 
Notice that it is the Spirit of God who creates and defines who are the people of God. It was the Spirit that directed the gospel messenger to the gospel receiver. And only once Cornelius and his household hear the gospel, does the Spirit confirm his presence with almost identical signs as the one that happened at Pentecost. We are not the people of God because we are the privileged class. It's not because we possessed an edge due to an enlightened ability to reason our way to God. All that differentiates us from any other person who does not yet know God is that he brought us to himself by his grace and mercy. It is an immense privilege to be a Christian. And it is one that we do not deserve. And it is a wonderful life in the spirit that we now get to live. That's the third and final thing we see about God's work in this passage. Third, different backgrounds, same life in the spirit. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But, be, but Peter began and explained to them it to them in order. Now, I want you to, that all that's going to be said in the next few verses is a repeat of what we've already read. So I'm going to skip down. And I'm going to pick up in verse 13. When Cornelius comes to Peter. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Something new and wonderful is happening. Change is coming. And like us, the people settled into the old way have some objections to the new. When news gets back to Jerusalem about Gentiles receiving the Spirit, a group raises questions because Gentiles... Don't receive the sign of circumcision required under the old covenant. But according to Peter, what he just told them, they had received the sign of the new covenant. Baptism. Apparently, God is switching out the entrance signs. Even as he's expanding the scope of his kingdom. Baptism is now the way to mark that a person has publicly enter the kingdom of God upon his reception, his or her reception of the message of the gospel and, and belief in the same. So while we have many brothers and sisters who occupy different denominations that see this differently on baptism, this is one of the reasons why we disagree with them. If the Holy Spirit waited 
to verify the inclusion of Cornelius into the kingdom until the gospel was heard and believed, and only then does Peter extend baptism, doesn't that tell us the sequence of how baptism should follow from belief? And if the Holy Spirit marked his new covenant people with new hearts that believe and repent, regardless of whether they bore the physical mark of circumcision, does that not indicate that the Spirit's purpose for the old sign has been finished through the work of Jesus Christ? Now, you might hear me even raise that slight distinction I just did about baptism. You might hear me raise those kinds of distinctions between the baptism position and other denominations. And you feel frustrated by the divisions we perpetuate due to the positions like these that we hold. I get that. I I feel the frustration of how I can know my brothers and sisters in Christ will join me around the table in heaven and yet... We can't find we cannot unite in common purpose and unity of belief around secondary things. I'm frustrated by that. I wish it were different. Wouldn't it be better if we just determined to agree on the gospel and all join the same church? Yes, that would be better. And that will be heaven. It will be. In heaven, we will see the truth because we'll see Jesus. And in his presence, we will have clarity on all the things we didn't quite have right on earth. And none of us will be surprised, including myself or us in this church that hold to a common belief. None of us will be surprised if we get there and we find out we were wrong on some things. But until then, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. We first establish ourselves to be a church united around the gospel, most important. And then around the things that are important for us to be able to pursue a common belief and mission. Things like believer's baptism. Just because these things that are distinctive to our church are not essential to salvation, they are still important for us in following how we understand the Bible tells us to live. The church is often one of the last places in communities, I think, where you find still a strongly held respect for traditions. And this is good and healthy in some ways. The core of what we believe has been passed down through generations of churches who have held to a similar faith in the gospel. Studying church history reinforces the importance of knowing what it was, what was the mystery that was hidden, but now has been revealed for all the saints, Colossians 1.26. But that commitment to tradition can often morph into church cultures committed only to tradition, our traditions. And we resist change because this is the way we've always done it. Peter will not allow that argument to stand as the last word in the Jerusalem church. One of the biggest barriers to enjoying life in the spirit that I can tell you personally from experience is a dogged resistance to yielding our customs. By this, we gradually become less and less willing for God to do unexpected things among us. So instead of thinking, 
We can't see God work unless we do it the way we've always done. Let's instead think, in the past, God chose to work through this. But now he might choose to work through this. Notice we're always being called to a balance of a commitment to unite around what is essential and important and not let everything else disunify us. So we should have convictions that we hold to because we see them in his word. But we should hold loosely the custom and traditions we create that may be one of the ways to obey his word, but not the only way. This takes humility. To regularly come before God and his word as a learner and as a listener. The gospel doesn't remove distinctions between our backgrounds, between our preferences, between our opinions. But it does reorder their relative importance for our life together. So as we cultivate this posture of willingness for God to work and wanting to yield our preferences to God's work. Is there anything we should be careful not to do? Well, we should be careful not to engage in practices that add or subtract from the truths of the gospel. The circumcision party was trying to keep up walls that Jesus, by his death, had torn down. For Peter, the gospel was the evaluative metric. The questions Peter asked are the questions we should ask. How has God chosen to work? What does it look like to conform to his patterns in our practice? What are God's priorities? What customs do we uphold that don't align with his priorities? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is meant to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to be clear about what the gospel is and what it means to live in faith and repentance. This is what we aim to do as we preach the gospel every week. As we welcome into our church people who confess the gospel and follow it. As we warn and admonish those who are departing from that gospel. We evaluate our ministries, our spending, our practices. On whether or not the things we're doing are vitally connected to helping people grow in the gospel life. So in the life of the church, God is always the same. And we are always going to find some way that we're different from him. So we expect that over time, God's presence in our life means we will change around him. The spirit of God conforms people with different backgrounds by bringing them into the same life with him. How can we live the spirit of God life together? Well, let me give you just a simple way by using the gifts of faith and repentance that the spirit gives us. This is what dawns on Peter by the end of chapter 11. The same spirit that brought faith and repentance to him has brought the same gifts to the Gentiles. These gifts given to very different people mean that these people can have life with God together. Verse 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift of the Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. All that is needed for life with God is the gospel. 
And all that is needed to receive that gospel is belief in Jesus and turning from sin to God. And all that is given through the spirit. Church, this is the gospel life laid out for us. To believe in Christ together and to keep inviting the spirit's work to change us by showing us sin to be left left behind, Christ's character to put on. In order to pursue that, the Spirit might have us change by altering the strength of our preferences for the sake of another. Or he might change us by making us stronger on our gospel beliefs so we don't shrink at opposition we will experience for the sake of the gospel. By the end of this passage, the gospel dam is breaking wide open. And as we'll see in the rest of Acts, good news for sinners is going to run to the rest of the world. The family we will be in heaven is wide open right now for new additions. God is impartial and gracious. Cornelius and Peter, though very different, became brothers in Christ. Who is God leading you to with the gospel so that they will become our newest brother and sister in God's family? I'm going to conclude. With Cornelius and Peter, God works to bring different people to the same life through the gospel and the spirit. Is that the way of your life? Are your differences with others dividing you from God and his people? Or are you seeing God work through them to unite your life to others? Around the gospel. Let's welcome God's way. And be willing for him to work through our differences. To give us the same life with him. Let's pray. More than anything father. As we read. Your saving work. That extends to the nations. We. We conclude this time of thinking on your word and respond in praise. Lord, that you are gracious and generous to us, all of us. You have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have extended your one and only son who gave himself sacrificially for our sins so that we might be forgiven and have new life with you through your spirit. We praise you for this gift. We praise you. And again, we ask that you would help us to welcome the rest of the way you will work in our life to make that gospel clear, both in us as individuals and in us as a church. Lord, help us to be aware of any barriers that are up right now in our hearts and in our church that are preventing, that are standing in the way of the way you work to make different into the same through Jesus. Lord, help us in the power of your spirit to resist those things. To apply the gospel which breaks down hostilities and barriers. To apply it to the barriers we hold and allow for them to be broken and removed. Lord, we pray that you would take us all. Though you have made us with distinctions and differences. We've grown up in different places and families and customs and backgrounds. Lord, please use all the dis 
differences and distinctions to be brought together to show even more how magnificent is the work of Christ to unite us unto yourself. So that we might be one of many, many, many lights that shine in the world to show how great and marvelous you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.